today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alan Carter, anchor and Queens Park Bureau Chief, Global News. He is with us now. Alan, thanks so much for the time. Are you, I thought you'd be out in the front lawn eating hot dogs and orange pop by now. <laughs> well, I, I've been out on the front lawn covering uh, the speech, and uh, I tell you what, there's uh, there's a lot of wilted grass. <laughs> sweaty people uh, exiting the lawn right now. That's what I thought when I saw the Premier going over to hug, to hug his flock. I'm thinking, man, there's going to be a lot of sweaty hugs there. It was pretty yeah, toasty. Yeah, that's right. All it right, so Tokyo. so talk about the buzz out there on the front lawn. Let's start with that, then go back into the ceremony itself. Uh, not often we get to see something like this. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, we haven't seen anything like this since 1985. The last uh, That's when uh, David Peterson came in. And, you know, the similarities are there. That was David Peterson overturning decades of Tory rule. And here we have Doug Ford overturning 15 years of liberal rule of the province. So it is a significant change, and it's a, a change in attitude. And one of the things that Mr. Ford said in his speech to the crowd is that I know that everybody didn't vote for me, and those that didn't vote for me, give me a chance. Give us a chance, and we're not going to take this responsibility lightly. We're not going to, uh, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't take it lightly that we have been given this enormous responsibility and this vote of confidence, because keep in mind, he won a significant majority with 40% of the vote. Uh, he already started pretty much before he was sworn in, uh, talking about cap and trade and such. Uh, will we see now things calm down over the course of the summer, or is he just going to keep giving her, even though everybody's on holidays? Well, we, he has said that he will recall the legislature. We don't know when that'll happen, but we expect the legislature to come back for maybe a week or, or maybe eight days somewhere in July. Um, I suspect it'll only be a week. And then he'll pass a couple of, he'll be able to put through a couple of pieces of legislation, like he wants to get us out of cap and trade and a couple of other things. And then everybody will head back to the barbecue circuit and relax by the lake until the House actually comes back in uh, second, usually the second week of September. He may push it further on if, you know, if they come back for one week, but then that's really when, you know, the rubber hits the road when we get to the fall. Uh, he still has not put forth any sort of costed platform. Uh, is that is anyone in any hurry for that now that he's in? Well, what he has said all along is that he wouldn't be able to say what the finances were like until he completed an audit, right. line-by-line audit, as you remember, he's promised that. So that process has yet to begin, or it's just in its infancy at the very uh, best. So he's going to have to wait for that. I would say you're probably looking into late fall uh, before you get a sense of, you know, I, I I think we can all expect right now that they're going to come out and say the books are in much worse shape than, than you imagine. Sure. We all know that that's going to happen. Whether or not that's true or whether or not people believe it, that's what's likely going to happen. And then from there, I think it won't be until next in next spring, maybe March even, before we really know what kind of financial boat we're in and whether or not Mr. Ford will run how big of a deficit. He said he's probably going to run a deficit in the first year, but will it be bigger than the Liberals were planning? Well, I suspect it'll be higher than $6.7 billion. Won't he start with this audit? I mean, isn't that a good first step? Will that be done quickly, do you think? Well, I think, he, you know, there'll be some pressure to have that finished and have that done because, once the house sits in the fall, I mean, there's going to be some demands on where's the money, like where's the cash, 
what kind of shape are we in? So that's what I'm saying. You'll, you'll see that come down, I think, probably September, early October. And uh, what about uh, what happens in regard to cap and trade? Already we have seen, and where's, where's the, uh, the conflict? When is the conflict coming between him and the prime minister? We've already seen uh, opposition leader Andrea Horvath say that this could cost, scrapping cap and trade could cost uh, as much as the gas plants. It could be another gas plant uh, fiasco. Is this one of those things you can't go back from? Well, in terms of Mr. Ford saying, I mean, he, he's going to cancel it. Um, the, the thing that we don't really know is what kind of risk is Ontario exposing itself to by pulling out of these contracts. Remember, these are contracts, mm-hmm. legal documents. So, and that's where you get the whole comparison to gas plants. Is that You, you know, the Liberals went in and ca- canceled gas plants with zero concern about how much it would cost in the outset. It was politically expedient to do so. And then the evidence showed in the aftermath they managed to wrestle the cost right to the ceiling. So what is going to happen in terms of the co- uh, cost of cap and trade, in terms of any litigation, in terms of getting ourselves out of these contracts? That we don't know. We don't know how much it will be. In terms of what's coming with Justin Trudeau in 2019, well, the conventional wisdom is that the feds actually do have the authority to impose some kind of carbon pricing Mm -hmm. system on Ontario. But that fight and how willing Mr. Trudeau is to fight against Ontario, when remember, he's also going to have to fight against Manitoba, too, that remains to be seen. Your thoughts on his choice for cabinet, uh, especially with Christine Mulroney as as attorney general? Or sorry, Caroline Mulroney. I think I think that's an inspired choice, uh, really. Uh, you know, she she's not a practicing lawyer. Not that you need to be one to be AG. But I tell you, if you want to put a rookie in in a position where they're not going to get flamed by the press, the AG is a good place to start. Because generally, in my experience, you never get an answer from an auditor or a attorney general. Pardon me, because they always say, "Well, that's before the courts. I can't comment." <laughs> yeah. So it's a bit of an easy duck for somebody who uh, doesn't have the kind of experience with dealing with the Queen's Park Press Gallery and the scrutiny that's going to come with uh, a ministerial portfolio. This certainly seems to be a uniting cabinet. It is a different cabinet than I expected in a couple of ways. I I was am surprised by the level of experience that Mr. Ford has chosen how Mr. Ford has chosen to go almost exclusively with longer-serving MPPs. He hasn't elevated a ton of new people, some, but not a ton. He has rewarded long-serving members, and he is clearly valuing legislative experience over anything else, even over diversity, certainly over regional representation. He has decided to put in people that know the place, either Queen's Park or no politics, in terms of Mr. Rickford, who was a former Harper minister, he's decided that that is his best way forward, as opposed to elevating newer people uh, and maybe having a different kind of a look. What is his biggest challenge as he heads into the first year? Well, I think his big challenge will be uh, managing expectations. Mr. Ford made a laundry list of promises. And if you think that 
you know, 13% reduction in hydro is your number one issue, or maybe you think buck of beer is your number one issue. Those are two, you know, the, the, those, either one of those things are big files to manage. Buck of beer sounds like that would be simple, but it's not. And especially when you start talking about things like beer and wine and corner stores, you can imagine the consultation, the kind of difficulty and the nuance and legislation that would be required for that sort of thing. Hmm. So there's going to have to be some patience. If you're looking for cheap beer and cheaper hydro, it's not coming right around the corner. So Mr. Ford is going to have to manage those expectations. Alan Carter has been with us, anchor and Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight, and Alan and crew will have all of the uh, rest coming out of the ledge today. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always appreciate being on. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Christia Freeland was in Hamilton this morning talking to the steel industry in regard to the tariffs that Donald Trump has slapped on and, of course, retaliation. Here's a clip of what she had to say. There has been unity of premiers with the federal government, of mayors. I spoke actually to the mayor of Hamilton this morning, and he asked me what he could do to help. He talked about all the U.S. mayors he's been in touch with. And, you know, of this has been not a partisan issue. We have had support across the political spectrum for the Canadian position. And that is really important because Canada has had these illegal measures imposed upon it. And these are measures affecting our great workers. And we need to stand together to support them. When it comes to Prime Minister Harper, uh, he is a person we all need to respect as the former Prime Minister of Canada. The remarks he made on Fox News recently, I think, were helpful. And we wish him well in all of his endeavors. My name is Mark McNeil from The Spectator uh, in Hamilton here. Uh, Have you made any kind of uh, assessment of job losses that would extend from the 25% tariff and the extent to which the measures you've announced today uh, might mitigate those job losses? In terms of job losses, my message is clear, that we stand with Canadian workers and we're prepared to support Canadian workers if and when that happens. What I can say is that the tariffs were assessed, and my colleague can speak a bit more to this, in a very careful way to make sure that there were Canadian and other uh, countries' products available in similar ways, to make sure that we work closely with industry to provide as least disruption as possible to Canadian industries. We stand firm with Canadian workers. We're here to assist and we'll continue to assess as we go forward if we need to do more. All right, there you have it. Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland uh, today in Hamilton uh, speaking to the steel industry and uh, retaliatory uh, tariffs. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. I'm happy to do so. Hey, how was the tour of the car plant? Well, the tour of the car plant was very interesting, and today I was down for the announcement, so I got to see the zinc line in action as well. So it's in my week to see industry in action. It's pretty cool for those of us that never don't necessarily get to see this on a regular basis, how these things operate. Well, it reminds you, and I don't mean to be negative here, but it reminds you of how automated things are. Yes, we've lost jobs, but we've lost them to machines. And to watch these machines in action, there's a choreography to them that is really outstanding, just amazing. And what are the humans doing? Well, they're adding the brain, if you will, of the operation. They're monitoring, observing. When there's a problem, they go in and fix it. So we're using the humans in the best way possible, not for grunt labor, 
before we can really add value. All right, so what was the atmosphere down there with Christia Freeland this morning? You know, we've talked many times that Canada is a small player, a relatively small player compared to the United States. So these tariffs, are they going to have any sort of impact on the United States, or mm-hmm. is this just politics? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the way I would phrase it to you is Christia Freeland reminded everyone there that uh, our federal government is going down a three-pronged approach to dealing with this issue. The first issue, and we don't talk about it all that much, is that uh, they have filed suits in both the World Trade Organization and under NAFTA to say that these tariffs are illegal, and I would agree with them completely. There is no security threat. This use of the 232 clause is wrong by Donald Trump, and whether his own government will admit it, let's take it to the court. The problem is that that kind of a decision takes six months, nine months, a year to sort out, and we haven't got a chance to wait. So step two is what's going to happen on Sunday, $16.5 billion of countervailing tariffs And again, what Canada has said is, A, we didn't jump on this. You put the tariffs on us on June 1st, but we waited, we measured. And also they're using NAFTA. This is actually a provision under NAFTA that if one side puts a tariff on, the other side is free to do so. So this is not like Mr. Trump waking up in the middle of the night or Mr. Trudeau waking up in the middle of the night and doing this. This is a measured response. But what you heard today was the third track of this, and that is to provide assistance. So they announced $2 billion basically of cash, that would be in, could be invested, uh, help with low-interest loans, other things that way. There's some retraining money. There's some money through the uh, Business Development Bank to open up other import and export markets, in other words, to reduce the dependence on America. All of these things are, I think, what they had to do to say we're, we're doing something today while we wait for these other things to take their effect over two, three, maybe six months. How long can the government afford to do that? How long can the government uh, prop everyone up like this? Right. So the answer to that question is, uh, is really, we get back to Mr. Trump's court, if this is the full extent of the tariffs that Mr. Trump puts against us, then this is fine. We can do this, and we can do this for years if we have to, uh, certainly for months. Uh, but the concern is that when we do this on, on Sunday, we put the counter tariffs, Mr. Trump is going to be miffed. And once he's miffed, he's going to put some more tariffs. He's going to use 232 and say, well, that evil... Uh, uh, attacking company, country of Canada, I'm going to put some more tariffs on. And the big fear, and this is, was in the, the sort of the elephant in the room, is that he would go after the auto industry. And then everything starts to get much more complicated. We, when we make cars today, we have an integrated supply chain, meaning things move back and forth across the border. In some instances, up to eight times before finished cars produced. If you had to put a tariff every single time across the border, it would cause bedlam. Ford Chrysler GM have asked him to not do this, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So to your question, if this is the extent of it, we're fine. But if Trump wants to escalate, I'm not sure what our capability is if we get into a full-blown trade war. We talk about how you know our economies are interwoven in the states, right. especially along the border uh, that we do business with. Are those states, is any of, of their concerns resonating with the president? Does this matter to him? Yes. Yeah, so, again, let me give you a little context for that. So between Canada and the United States, we do $2 billion of trade every single day. That means, if you do the math, $730 billion of trade every year. The tariffs that Trump has put on and the countervailing tariffs by us affects $32 billion of that. So there's still nearly $700 billion of trade that's been unaffected by this. That said, yes, states that are close to the northern border, they're very worried about where this is going. And here's another little factoid that was lost on us. Uh, in the United States, if you are an importer of steel, in this case, importer of Canadian steel or aluminum, you can actually ask the government for an exemption from these tariffs for whatever reason you want. Twenty 
20,000 applications for exemptions, 20,000 applications for exemptions have been filed in Washington. Imagine how the bureaucracy is reacting to that. If Trump escalates, imagine how many more exemptions. And these all have to be processed one at a time by bureaucrats. It's becoming a nightmare in Washington. How is he balancing this? Because, again, sooner or later, there's going to be a backlash because it's affecting Americans. Uh, are, are they aware of that? Uh, are, are they aware of this discussion that that sooner or later times may get tough for them? Or mm-hmm. is it such a minimal amount that they don't care? Mm-hmm. So I think the key word you used there was sooner or later. And if the answer is it's going to be later. I think the full effect of these actions by Trump, especially, again, if he escalates them, will be seen not so much this month or next month, but more as we get closer to Christmas or into 2019. In fact, there are some indications already that these first measures that he's doing could even cause or trigger some kind of a recession, if not in the United States as a whole, in some of the states of the United States by early 2019. And I think that's when people are going to see it. If I can take you back here to Wednesday night, Trump was at a rally in North Dakota, And, of course, that's when he got talking about wheat, and and he was amazed that Canadians grind their wheat. Gosh, what did he think? We just sell kernels to people. But um, uh, his fan base loved this. Yeah, it's for that lock them up chant in this case. It's get Canada chant. But they don't understand what they're talking about. And so the full effects will be seen within a few months. And that's when I think you're going to have even more of a call to rein him in. Uh, talk about President, or sorry, Prime Minister Stephen Harper and the ballyhoo in regard to uh, him heading down there and not having really any sort of conversation with the Prime Minister's office on this. Considering, as Christia Freeland said, this is you know this has crossed, crossed all party lines and, and everyone has has tried to support. Is the is the former Prime Minister helping here? So that's the key question. We don't know what he's actually going to say. If what Mr. Harper is doing is using his ties through the conservative community to make the same case for Canada that other people have been making, only he thought with a different messenger, people would be more receptive to the message, that's not a bad thing at all. You know, it's the old story, if you, you won't listen to your mother, then maybe you'll listen to your father. Maybe somebody else carrying the message will be heard. What we're worried about, of course, since he hadn't sought permission and he didn't clear any of this with the prime minister's office, is maybe he's taking a different mission. Now, he did appear on Fox News recently in the United States, uh, and, and what he said there was perfectly consistent with the government's position. So there's no reason, I think, to be alarmed that he has a different mission, but we just don't know. And we probably won't know until he finishes discussions and then appears at some kind of press conference afterwards to tell us what he told them. Why, why would he have this attitude? Why would he just not clear it with somebody? Why would he just not even tell them? I mean, he doesn't have to. He's a private citizen. That being said, listen, look at all the buzz this is creating. Right, and, and I, if I will, also just to contrast this, uh, there you've got uh, Stephen Harper doing this, and meanwhile, Brian Mulroney, another former uh, exactly. prime minister and conservative prime minister, does everything in concert with the prime minister's office. I suspect with, with Mr. Harper, is still, um, shall we call it, sore wounds or licking his wounds. After all, he lost the election to Justin, and that's what caused him to step aside. He may still resent that, and that may be why he's a little slow to coordinate, but... Again, if his heart's in the right place and he's got the right message, he's not going to hurt us. The concern would be if he takes a different kind of a message, then we've got to see. The reason for that, by the way, Scott, is simple. In this kind of a negotiation, we Canadians have to stand shoulder to shoulder and be consistent with our messaging. If we start saying different things, then America wins. Uh, United we stand, divided we fall. How come the uh, former prime minister hasn't said something now? This has been in the news cycle for 24 hours now. How come he hasn't released some sort of statement saying what the heck he's up to? 
Well, I go back to the comment you made. He is a private citizen now. Uh, in theory, his actions uh, don't need any special uh, attention. Uh, he may not realize that we still think former prime ministers are important people in all of this. So I, I, I haven't given you any thought at all. I, I imagine today, in fact, he doesn't even have a former communications person who's a private citizen. He is his own communications person. And for all I know, he was seeing good friends last night, maybe had a bottle of wine. Who knows? He just didn't feel the need to let us know. Uh, how do you think Andrew Shear is handling this? Well, I think as well as can be expected, Andrew would like to make some hay on this. He would like to earn some political points. Remember, there's an election in 2019, uh, and he's hoping to find a weak spot so he can drive a wedge into uh, uh, Justin Trudeau's heart. But I think, again, he's correctly saying that while I wouldn't have let it get to this circumstance, I would have tried to offset things earlier. Oh, well, you know, it is what it is, uh, and I, I support the prime minister's intent. And I don't think he can do anything else. Same thing with uh, uh, our, our fellow in charge of the NDP. They have to stand shoulder to shoulder with us. Getting back to Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, uh, we've talked and many experts have talked on this show uh, on how a, a lot of companies or uh, people in the financial business are, are just trying to stay calm and, and, and do business and not be too uh, distracted with what's going on south of the border. Uh, that being said, we've talked about how people are just saying, well, well, we'll, we'll hunker down for the next four years, then we'll see what happens after that. Uh, and then if he gets uh, reelected and such. That being said, uh, Harper alluded to the fact that, you know, a lot of people are waiting for this to go away. It may not be going away. This may be the new normal when it comes to politics and when it comes to the populist movement. Your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm going to look at a glass half full kind of guy. I'm not prepared to say this is the new normal, in part because Donald's taken on the world with all of this, so he's made enemies of all of his good friends. Also, because we've not yet seen the full implications of this, and again, I think if you were to drive America back into recession, or let's say the stock market falls a thousand points, there's going to be a lot of people asking them to rethink this. And then last but not least, we don't know the results yet of the midterm elections, and I think it's a pretty good chance that one of the House or the Senate may turn to Democratic leadership, and at that point, they're not going to have any problem saying, look, you've overstepped your bounds, we've got to rein you in. So this is why at the moment, I'm not saying it's the new normal. I think it is for shall we say, four, five, six months. But I still think this is going to pass in the long term. Uh, Trump has said publicly that in any trade war, he's convinced America is going to win. I don't know what makes him think that. Our evidence runs contrary to that. Yes, he can hurt Canada, absolutely. But in hurting Canada, he's going to hurt the United States in the same way. And if he wants to be reelected, and remember, most politicians are in business to be reelected. His reelection is two more years from now. He was going to bring back jobs. He was going to make America great again. There's no sign that any of this that he's doing today is helping accomplish that. Uh, In regards to NAFTA and, of course, the upcoming midterms, uh, if, in fact, the Democrats gain more power over the midterms, where does that leave NAFTA, considering it's usually the Republicans who are more pro-free trade? So, well, let's talk about NAFTA for a second. Uh, uh, although Christian Freeland has been talking to Robert Lighthizer this week, uh, he's the trade negotiator on their part. She's talked to him actually six times. The person not at the table is Mexico. So the Mexican elections happen this weekend. Uh, the new president should be announced by next weekend. And there is a feeling that once the new president's in place and he's got his team, uh, that we can get back to the table and at least continue talking, even though they wouldn't be ratified by the time of the midterms, that we could still get a deal. Um, and I'm still hopeful to do this. I, in fact, I think some of Donald Trump's posturing on these tariffs 
is around NAFTA. Now, I think he was hoping one-sided concessions, we'd just give him whatever he wanted to get the deal done. We haven't done that. But I still think this is quite possible, and I think they'll get back to it. Now, again, the key here, Scott, is negotiations require both sides to give and take. If America comes back to the table with the point of view that Canada has to give, 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 and we're going to take, 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 then no, we're not going to have a deal. But I, I, I am, I'm kind of hopeful that, that some of this is changing a little bit. And, and even the fact that Mr. Ross in the United States uh, hurt his boss by saying that Canada is no national security threat and our trade deficits with Canada are so small, they're not the ones we really worry about. It just lends more credence that this is posturing by Mr. Trump, not a permanent state of affairs. Uh, should Donald Trump be complaining about these new retali- retaliatory tariffs? Should he complain about those? Will this set him off, do you think? Yes. So should he complain? No. Why should he not complain? These are tariffs that we are allowed to put under uh, current rules under NAFTA. In other words, we didn't start this. You started this. These are retaliatory tariffs as specified in the NAFTA agreement if one side or the other does this one-sided action. So he shouldn't. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to. And and it may very well be that he says, oh, yeah? Well, and we've seen this with China, for instance. When he put tariffs on China, China did what we did, matched the tariffs, absolutely reciprocated. He was mad, put more on, China put more on. Now he's talking about $200 billion because Trump is Trump. And, and I, I've often said to people, I feel that Trump thought he was elected emperor of the United States, not president. He, he's really, in my mind, acting beyond the rule of law. And I am just so surprised that people in the United States, when we think of the balancing act between the judiciary, the executive, and the legislative branches, I am really surprised they haven't reeled him in. He is getting well beyond what a president should be doing. Okay, on that note, and we've talked again many times, and experts have said, we've joked about this, stay calm, trade on, just keep riding it out. That being said, this seems like a, it's a bus wailing down a hill without any brakes. At, at what point does it hit something? Yeah, and possibly without a driver. Well, uh, it is hitting something. Again, in fairness, I don't think we've seen any impact on steel in this month. But if you talk to the steel companies, they're saying as they look to book orders for 2019 and 2020, a lot of companies are saying they're not certain what they should be doing. When you talk about making investments, uh, say uh, energy investments or or, uh, uh, environmental investments in these plants, companies are saying, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, which is what I think Mr. Trump wanted to do. He wanted to disrupt the day-to-day operations. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line is, as Canadians, we're, we're not doing this. It's being done to us by somebody else, and all we can do is react. Uh, Christian Freeland, uh, I was asked if Christian Freeland's package today of nearly $2 billion in support for the steel and aluminum sector, if that was enough. To be candid, nobody knows if it's enough because we haven't been able to track these. Mark McNeil's question in your clip saying, well, have you, have you estimated what the impacts are going to be? Mm. We can't. We just don't know yet. So I'm confident the government will respond as they need to going forward. But we're into some virgin territory here we've never been before. And, and that's why we keep hoping we can find a way to back out of it. Uh, the disruption is complete. We can pretty much check that box off. And, and you know, we've talked about this many times. Why did the American people uh, elect this guy? They, they elected him to shake things up. So he has shaken everything up. That being said, will this all be for naught? At the end of the day, it'll be, ah, everybody's cool. Yeah, give you a little bit there, take a little bit there, and we all go home. Well, you, know, you asked a good question there, and, and maybe say it a little differently than you said. It, you know, is there an end game for Donald Trump? He, he started the war. Does he want to ever finish it? And if he does want to finish it, what will it look like? 
I believed when he started it was total capitulation of the enemy. In other words, if we all give him what he wants and we get nothing in return, then he declares victory. If he can't get that, is he prepared to settle for something else? And that's what I'm not certain about. Um, at, at the moment, the other Republican leaders, the leaders of the House and Senate, they're actually afraid of him with these midterm elections. They're afraid of ticking him off. They're afraid of him holding one of these big rallies like he did in North Dakota and saying, don't elect that person, don't elect that person. However, as we get closer to those elections and those outcomes are known, they may get a backbone again, and then we may see a whole different second half to Donald's presidency. That's what I'm holding on to. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Have a great holiday weekend. I will. You do the same. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked a lot on this show uh, in the past in regard to the bread monopoly. The bread monopoly that, that got you a $25 bread card. My wife was jumping up and down the hall recently after finally getting hers. Uh, because what has happened is there was a massive investigation and uh, some came forward uh, within the industry and started telling tales of price fixing within the bread industry. Uh, an employee of one of the largest bakeries apparently started with a PowerPoint presentation about low bread profits and how to orchestrate price increases with retailers. And the rest is history, as they say. Uh, let's bring in Kevin Greer, Kevin Greer Market Analysis and Consulting Incorporated. He is with us now. Kevin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, thank you, Scott. So are you surprised they can seem to pinpoint where this started? Can we? Um surprised. I, I guess I'm surprised, Scott, that the whole thing happened in the first place. So um, surprised about this particular aspect of it? No. Um, and again, I, I literally don't know what happened, of course, and really nobody, nobody does. But it kind of makes sense that it would start uh, at that level. In other words, start with the bakeries themselves as opposed to the retailers themselves. If, you know, I just think it's a little little easier to do, coordinate at that level than it is for retailers to phone each other up, if in fact uh, any of that was actually going on. So, no, I'm not surprised about that. To the average grocery shopper, in layman's terms, explain what happened, what's happened here. Well, again, based on what, well, one thing we know, know that Loblaw admitted that there was some kind of price-fixing scheme going on in for bread. And it went on for about uh, 14 years or so, and it supposedly ended a, a couple years ago. And basically what the, the idea was is that the two major bakers, Canada Bread and uh, Western Bakeries, um, coordinated to have regular price increases year after year. In other words, there was no real competition on bread, but there was uh, allegations or uh, price fixing or collusion between the bakers themselves and the, the major retailers in Canada. So we all paid more for bread, uh, supposedly, because of this price fixing scheme. In does, the that, does that yep. basically explain that? In the grand scheme of things, how much would this have affected the average person buying groceries? Well, that's a, you know, really we don't, to be honest, Scott, we really don't know because we don't know what the market would have done mm. if this wasn't going on. Um, I did a little bit of a review in terms of what, uh, if, if bread prices went up, 
like the regular rate of inflation, bread prices went up a lot more than, than the regular rate of inflation over that period of time. Bread prices were jumping rapidly compared to a tepid little food price inflation. So we ended up paying probably another, um, over the course of time, maybe $500 over that period of time. So, you know, you be the judge. Is that a lot or, or not? I don't, you know, I don't know. Now we're hearing that this all started as a PowerPoint presentation. Are, are you surprised this was kept as quiet as it was, that it escalated to the point that it did for that many years? Well, yeah, I, I am. Um, I, I, see, again, Scott, I, I'm... I'm shocked that this happened in the first place. I, you know, I, I like to think that there's solid competition going on, and I do believe it, that there is solid competition going on. So it, it would have had to take place between a limited number of people, which, again, it makes sense at the, at the bakery level, that it's just maybe a couple people that are coordinating this, and that the retailers may or may not have been going all along with this knowingly in the first place. So, um, yeah, that, that makes sense what you're saying, that it, that it kept quiet. But, boy, it's a long, long time for something like this to go on. Without the, before it gets out. Uh, you, you talked about it, a limited number uh, would have been involved in this because anybody who's at this level of business, this would have read, raised a red flag and people would have said, you know, that's price fixing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how how do you do that over so many company over so many companies over so many different boardrooms, I guess, and it not be found out earlier? Right. And again, uh, I keep on saying if it happened the way it it did, uh, it is it is shocking to me. And and it would be surprising that uh, it could go on like that, because that's a long, long time. So, Scott, I'm, I'm with you and I can't add to it because I agree with you. It's 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 very perplexing. Uh, how about how this all came down and how it was discovered? Uh, apparently through a whistleblower and then other bakeries coming forward and giving information to, uh, in order to gain immunity from all of this. Your thoughts on how uh, we got here? Well, two, two, two things. Number one, um, apparently Loblaw found out about it, or, or maybe Weston. Like, Weston owns... Loblaws and Western Bakeries. Right. Okay, so that's the conglomerate. Somebody there found out about it, and they're the ones that, that informed the Competition Bureau. Like the Competition Bureau, its mandate is to ensure there's competition. Their, their mandate is to ensure that this does not go on. Their mandate is to ensure that uh, when mergers and acquisitions happen, that it's in the best interest of consumers and so on. So, so this is a criminal investigation. Like this is not civil or administrative. This is criminal investigation as I understand it. And so they told the Competition Bureau that we found out this is going on in our business and they they named names, Loblaws named named names of other retailers and you know we've seen the names of the, the major retailers across Canada. The major re- other major retailers are denying anything to do with it. So but you know the thing that's gotta be really bothersome to the industry, Scott, is this drip, drip, drip. You know, and and I did predict that. <laughs> I didn't predict a whole lot, right? But I did predict this is going to be a, a slow release. Every couple months, there's going to be something new coming out. And so, once again, I'm on the Scott Thompson show talking about this, and it's got to be a nightmare for these for these grocers because, again, every couple months something new comes out, and every couple months there's something in the papers and, and on the radio talking about this. And you know, some of your staff sent me that article in the Toronto Star about about this, and there's a survey there asking whether or not you trust your grocer. And the survey, not that it's a scientific survey, but it said 80% don't, mm. you know? So that's, that's, that's horrible. Do you think this is the tip of the iceberg within this industry? 
Scott, I, I'm, the, I'm the wrong one to ask because yeah. I do not believe that this, I couldn't believe this happened in the first place. And I, and I, I do not think it does happen. I think this is abnormal. So I, I don't think it's the tip of the iceberg. You can't believe it, it, it would have happened because the stakes are so high? I mean, man, you get wrapped with this. It isn't good. That's right. And, and not only that, Scott, just, again, think about the, the negative image that it puts the industry that so yes you've got the criminal aspect of it but b far worse is the reputation and and number and i i see this industry as an industry that's extraordinarily competitive these people fight each other tooth and nail this we have deflation in canada once again like all of 2017 food prices from stores decreased and we started to see a little bit of inflation by the end of the year last year and into this year. But but once again, in the month of May, the latest StatsCan Consumer Price Index came out. We've got deflation once again. So that, so that's why I believe that this is unusual because we have an industry that's extraordinarily competitive. They fight to win with the Flyers. Every every week those Flyers come out. They want to be the one that wins, and their vision of winning is is a, is a price that brings people into the store. So I, I think this is unusual, Scott. But Consumers don't. Based on, again, that little survey, 80% don't trust retailers. Are other industries taking note, do you think, especially within the food business? Well, um, the last time anything close to this came out was about 10 years ago. It was regarding chocolate bars. And I think you and I talked about this before. Some of the big chocolate bar manufacturers were were accused um, but uh, but uh, the the case ended. So you don't hear about this very often, Scott. Uh, what does the food industry do now to combat this? Loblaw obviously uh, issued their their twenty five dollar uh, bread card. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- d- how does that fly with consumers? I guess any deal is a great deal. Sure. Um, b- but what does what do the retailers do to instill confidence in the public again? Well. Um you're right. I mean, all, all of us, like you said, your wife was very happy, and all of us like to get something like that. But I was on a radio talk show out in BC about this, and there was a consumer association person on the phone, and uh, that person was hammering this thing in terms of uh, the tokenism of the $25 compared to what the damage was and so on. So I, I kind of think that it's not, uh, consumers look at it as not enough. Number one, and the other number two, Scott, is we have to remember that when you say how do retailers combat this, the other retailers, major retailers, are not admitting that they uh, that they had anything to do with this at all. So that's the other aspect of it. But I, I think the the way they combat it is again being competitive. Uh, you said that this is obviously more the producers uh, concerned and not the retailers. Do you think the retailers must have known or had an inkling of it? I mean, are they implicated in this in any way? Um, they, well, you're asking a question, uh, you know, in terms of this legal process. Are they implicated? Well, they're in the newspaper all the time. I, they're being, they're, they're, they've said that they have uh, opened their doors to the Competition Bureau to investigate. So in that regard, yes, they're implicated because they're named uh, and uh, they, they've, they've said that they are being investigated. So in that way, uh, but again, uh, I want to be very strong. Sobe, for example, has been uh, adamant that they, they have not known about this. Now, I think that there is a way 
um, that, that, that retailers could have gone along with this in sort of benign ignorance in some respects, you know, see no evil, that sort of thing. That could have happened. Um, so, so, but of course, Scott, I honestly don't know. Uh, but uh, you're asking where, if there a way that they could have been implicated in this. Uh, uh, I, I, it's hard to imagine, but it's possible. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, the grocery industry, incredibly competitive, very, very small margins. Um, uh, does the public have many options here? I mean, at the end of the day, there's a handful of companies that do this. Mm-hmm. Do we? Does the public have any option? Well, that's another thing I like to point out to people. In, in, in the general sense, like we've got, uh, people say it's all concentrated industry. Well, I don't know, is it? We've got We've got here in Ontario. We've got the big three: Loblaw, Sobe, Metro, right? And then, and then we've got uh, Costco, huge in groceries. Walmart is big and getting bigger. So we've got five big companies. By most parameters, people would say that's a competitive industry. But we don't stop there. We've got great independent grocers like Longos and 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 Farm Boy and so on. And then we've got ethnic grocers. Um, so I think this is an extraordinarily competitive industry by any measure. And so, um, you know, in answer to your question, we do have choices, and, um, and it's a competitive business. Is this an opportunity for this business? Is this an opportunity for those independents, like you said? Mm-hmm. Yes, it really is. I mean, it, when it's all said and done, uh, the independents are, that can survive in a competitive environment like this are... are Top-notch grocers such as such as Longos, like I mentioned, but uh, at the same time, the other grocers, um, you know, this, uh, are fighting with pricing as well. See, this this could cost them a lot, in, because maybe the reason why we've got deflation once again is because they've sharpened their pencils to try and get customer loyalty. You know, so they, they may have uh, they may have uh, done well on bread over the years, but this is costing them now in terms of their ability to uh, to increase prices because maybe they're Again, in a deflationary environment, because they've cho- they've chosen to try and get people back through through price again. Will we see this as a marketing opportunity as one company takes advantage of the other? Are we going to start seeing uh, grocery uh, retailers or, or, or companies instead of saying we've got the lowest prices, we're going to hear slogans like "We're transparent," almost like politicians? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. That one's over. Uh, can you see this being great in terms of uh, you know? I mean, on one. Can you hand, see this it, being it, an ad campaign? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I can't answer that. I mean, to me, I would be hesitant to do it because it brings attention to the issue. But uh, you know, again, I, 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 that's beyond my skill set in terms of whether that makes sense. Well, uh, the, you talk about the public's confidence in the grocery system. Uh, that being said, will this case make change? Will this case provide change? Will it? Will it? Does it send a message? Well, I think that we, whether we're living in Hamilton or I am in Guelph or Canada overall, should have confidence in our in our food system. This is an industry that's built on trust, uh, trust in food safety, trust in choice, trust in price. And when it's all said and done, Scott, we do have a fantastic food system that delivers food very, very efficiently and effectively and competitively. And so this is a this is a horrible uh, failure. But it's one part of it, and when it's all said and done, we have an excellent food system, and the retailers are a strong part of that. So I think you know, my message would be that we do have a food system to be proud of here in Canada on a lot of different ways. Safety, competitiveness, choice. I mean, the choice is incredible.
Is this a knock against conglomeration once these companies just get so big, they too much control, loss of sight, loss of vision? Um, I don't think so, Scott, because, again, um, they're, they're big, but like I say, it's a competitive market. It's a difficult competitive market. Like Costco and Walmart, for example, are constantly eating away the shares of the big grocers. So I don't think there's any complacency here. And if there is, uh, the, the Sobe got, maybe you could say they got complacent, for example, a while ago, and they, they lost their CEO. Um, you know, they, they, their share prices tanked, and so they're, they're, they're in the midst of a big turnaround. So I don't see this industry as complacent at all. Was this all about greed? Is that how we got here? Well, uh, I, I suppose you could look at it that way. I, uh, you know, you're talking about the guy doing the PowerPoint presentation. He was pointing out that uh, the bread, again, <laughs> based on what we see or hear, and uh, uh, frankly, I'd never heard about the PowerPoint presentation and the reports I read. I, I like that. <laughs> but, so he was basically complaining, I suppose, about, or he or she, whoever it was, was complaining about the margins in bread and saying, hey, why, why, are, we, why are we putting up with this? You know, we should be making money on bread. So, um, yeah, I guess you could define it that way, sure. Uh, is this an industry, meaning the grocery industry, where it's easy to do this and hide it? It's just there's so many products. It's such a complex uh, a list of products in every store. Is this easy to do in the grocery industry? Well, I guess in one hand you could say, yeah, obviously they did it for 14 years. How how, how tough could it be? The flip side, though, is that um, I, I, I keep on going back to competition. I keep on, you know, in uh, prices are declining. Once again, in the month of May, food purchased from stores, prices declined. So um, I think competition cures cures all all that. And, uh, and so I, uh, I, I guess you could say it's easy to do because they did it. But the other side is I don't believe it is easy to do because of A, like you pointed out, the, this is a criminal case. But B, uh, you want to get people into your stores and you don't get people into your stores by having high prices. You talked about the uh, slim profit margins here for grocers. How, uh, and this is a, a little off topic, but certainly uh, newsworthy in the sense that how are grocers concerned in regard to uh, trade tariffs that we're seeing uh, going back and forth and, and the ongoing NAFTA discussions? How concerned is the grocery industry on this? Um, well, again, you talked about you know narrow margins. Just because you have narrow margins doesn't mean you're not profitable. I mean, it's just the nature of the business. Like, uh, for example, a jewelry store probably has high margins, but they don't sell a lot, whereas a grocer's got narrow margins and they sell a lot. So, uh, But yeah, they do have fairly narrow margins on much of the store, like the inside of the store. But in terms of the tariffs and so on, yeah, they, they won't be... The first thing they want, though, is that everybody's the same. So, in other words, I mean, if they're bringing in product, if one grocer's bringing in a product that uh, has high tariffs, and the other one isn't, that would be bad. But as long as they're all on the same footing, uh, that's their first concern. But no, they're not going to be pleased with tariffs if it causes higher prices. Uh, no, believe it or not, they don't like to increase prices because they, they know consumers will back away. So, so, no, this is not good for anybody. Kevin Greer has been with us. Kevin Greer, Market Analysis and Consulting Incorporated. Kevin, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Always enjoy talking to you, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.